Hey, I'm Ellen from Jacksonville, Florida. Hey, I'm Cody from Edmonton, Alberta. I'm Eric from Nashville. Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is produced independently and supported by listeners like you and me. You should support the show like I did. Just visit MaximumFun.org slash donate. I'm Jesse Thorne. When I talked to the metal legend Lemmy, he had to take a call halfway through our interview. Excuse Cut. <laughs> Pause. Who's this now? Yes. Oh, I'm fine. Could you call me back in about 20 minutes? I'm in an interview. Uh, okay, thanks. So many women, so little time. <laughs> it's Bullseye. Is Lemmy. Well, he's the singer for Motorhead, and he's revered by metalheads around the globe. Here's a scene in the movie Airheads with Brendan Fraser and Steve Buscemi that pretty much sums it up. Who'd win in a wrestling match, Lemmy or God? Lemmy. God. Wrong, Ted. Trick question. Lemmy is God. I talked to Lemmy in person a couple years ago at South by Southwest. You'll hear that amazing conversation later in the show. But first, Arrested Development isn't the only comedy show with a legion of passionate fans who obsess over series continuity in-jokes and daddy issues that's coming back after a years-long hiatus. There's also The Venture Brothers. It's Adult Swim's beloved parody of 1960s adventure cartoons. We'll revisit my conversation with the show's co-creator, Jackson Public. As soon as I had come up with it, I realized that every stray superhero and spy and, and, you know, ninja idea I had could also fit under this umbrella. It's true. There's a character named Dr. Girlfriend. Plus, a couple of Jason Kotke's all-time picks for the best stuff on the web. And the hosts of My Brother, My Brother and Me offer up answers to listeners' pop culture quandaries. That's all this week on Bullseye. Let's go. My guest's birth name is Chris McCullough, but he's known in entertainment circles by the name Jackson Public. In the 1990s, he was a writer and artist on the animated series The Tick. In the early 2000s, he created The Venture Brothers with his collaborator Doc Hammer. It's an animated series that's both a satire of and an homage to early adventure shows like Johnny Quest. It stars two sweet and stupid teen brothers, their mad doctor father and their tough guy bodyguard. The fourth season of the show ended in 2010, and after just a bit of a wait, the fifth season of the show debuted earlier this month. Here's a clip from the first episode of the new season. Dr. Thaddeus Venture explains his outer space project to a group of newly recruited college students. One of his sons, Hank Venture, grabs the mic, too. All right, those of you in white clean suits are development class. Those in orange are manufacturing class. And all of you in green, you're in special class. class. There's nothing funny about special class. They are my personal helpers. And that makes them better than the rest of you. Yeah, I'd just like to chime in here to say that all classes, colors, and creeds are special at Hanko. Think of Hanko as not just me, Hank Co., but as your company steward. We have magazines, both dirty and clean, clothing, clean only, and of course, all your food stuff beats. All Thank right, you. all right. We've got a lot of work ahead of us, fellow men and fellow women. Jackson Public and I spoke in 2007. I was, at the time, recording the show in my spare bedroom. 
So this show, uh, The Venture Brothers, is clearly born of the uh, television program Johnny Quest in a certain way. Right. To what extent is it born of that? And to what extent did it come from something else? And and you brought that into it. I mean, initially, to a huge extent, it was uh, borrowed and begged and stolen from Johnny Quest. Um, I think when I started messing around with the characters, I was goofing more on like the Hardy Boys kind of stuff, just idiot kids. And I was thinking of like Scooby-Doo and stuff like that. And the uh, initial ideas for it when I was going to do it is like a comic strip or just, uh, you know, boy adventurers and and what would really happen is their throats would get cut or whatever. (laughs) So, uh, and I was reading a lot of uh, Tom Swift but uh, I was going to say, uh, people are always yeah. saying, uh, are you always saying Hardy Boys and um, uh, and uh, what's it called, Johnny Appleseed, Johnny Quest. <laughs> and the thing that Johnny I thought Rocket. of was, I was like, you know what this is like? This is like Tom Swift in his flying lab. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Which I, I only encountered when I was in my mid-20s or whatever. Uh, somebody that I wrote with um, had a bunch of them from his childhood and he lent them to me. And I was like, this is this is what Johnny Quest was ripping off, you know? <laughs> so uh, when I started messing around with the characters, it was just the boys, and then I started giving them a dad, and, and that just, you know, immediately led to Johnny Quest. So, I mean, the model is definitely Johnny Quest, but the inspiration was probably the stuff that inspired Johnny Quest in the first place. I was going to say, one of the one of the interesting things about it is that Johnny Quest, in a lot of ways, was sort of a last hurrah for that genre, which had like a, a huge what genre though? Uh, like that's that's what attracts me to Johnny Quest is that it kind of invented a genre, and that's that's why I like doing this show because uh, uh, as soon as I had come up with it, I realized that every stray superhero and spy and and you know ninja idea I had could also fit under this umbrella. Like the, the, there seems to be a non-existent uh, like science action genre from the 60s that that nobody's uh, uh, done anything with. Well, there's then. this kind of boy adventurer mm-hmm. thing that your show draws on very much. But in it, it also brings in a lot of other sort of ideas and things from from other sort of pop cultural detritus. Yeah. How do you make something that is like that that has that quality that quality of you know i you know maybe pastiche or something like that where it's bringing in all of these different odd things which in in a certain way is like one of the motivating factors of uh of a lot of adult swim programming mm-hmm. um and how do you take that and then invest it with something that's actually real because I think one of the things that that people would say uh, uh, that I would say distinguishes uh, your show from some of the other shows that are like it is that there's actually a little bit of sincere interest in the characters and right, their emotional right. lives, no matter how ridiculous they are. Uh, just because that's what I'm drawn to writing, you know. De- I think definitely when I started the pilot. I I meant for it to be more superficial than it ended up being. <laughs> um and you know, uh, Doc Hammer, my uh, you know, co-writer is uh, uh he deserves a lot of the credit for, you know, kind of pushing things um because uh even when I was going to do the pilot, I I I was going to do this super cheap uh make it look bad on purpose like like the old Marvel cartoons of the 60s like worse than John, I mean Johnny Quest actually looked pretty cool sometimes it was limited but 
Um, and even as I was kind of pitching it that way, I already felt like that was an old joke or that was limiting or, or whatever. And, um, I guess at the time you had the, uh, um, you know, like the ambiguously gay duo and stuff like that, that were, that were kind of making that joke. So, um, once I gave up on the style being so, you know, lame on purpose, I thought, well, I should make this actually good. And, um, I had written for the tick and stuff for years, which, which had like a definite heart to it, you know, even though it was superhero parody and everything. So it's just, uh, uh, I don't know. Once you start digging around in these characters, like you can't kind of can't help it. Like I, I, I'm naturally more into storytelling than, um, just, uh, quick jokes and, and, um, being ironic all the time and everything, you know? There are kind of direct parodies in the show sometimes, and there oh, are kind of uh, there are sort of pop cultural allusions that, that aren't much more than just pop cultural allusions. Sometimes, yeah. Are there things that happen like that? That the think ideas that you think of um, that are like that that you discard because they're too much, they're too empty, or they're they're not character driven. Probably. I mean, I, I think, because uh, I'm really sensitive to that in other shows that I won't name. But, like, uh, you know, just a... Uh, um, that robot chicken show? No. <laughs> um, shows where, uh, and it, maybe it's a, a, a thing that my generation is specifically guilty of, uh, movies or shows where simply, simply referencing something from your childhood... A family is, guy? <laughs> uh, ...replaces writing or making a joke, Dane you know? Cook. I've actually never seen Dane Cook. All I hear about is, you know, like, every comedian that gets interviewed now bitches about him, but uh, <laughs> I've never seen him. But, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm really sensitive to that. Like, where you go, oh, you know, just mentioning Raiders of the Lost Ark doesn't make that writing or <laughs> comedy or anything like that. And I, I'm sure we do it to some extent ourselves, but um, uh, I, I, I like to think it's the character's fault. That if a character just <laughs> mentioned something, I mean, we, we, we either treat it, you know, I either treat it as a story point or a, a, a kind of what if kind of thing. Like, um, you know, I, I took the Fantastic Four and screwed with them because they always fascinated me. And I thought, well, wouldn't, wouldn't it actually be horrible to get bathed in cosmic rays and have all <laughs> these afflictions instead of superpowers? Uh, and that was, um, that was kind of how I approached a lot of the more, uh, Paradistic is that a word? Paradistic elements of uh, like I'll, the first season, it. yeah, of the first season in particular was going. All right, you know, take this thing you loved when you were a kid, or that fascinated you, or that you maybe wished you would grow up and write for one day. Because <laughs> I, I definitely wanted to write comics when I was a kid, and uh, make it warp it with uh, disappointment and failure, because huh. that's you know that's what the Venture Brothers is all about. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest is Jackson Public. He's one of the creators of The Venture Brothers, which runs on Adult Swim on the Cartoon Network. He and I spoke in 2007. The Venture Brothers just returned for its fifth season. Here's a clip from the first episode of this new season. Dean Venture is talking to his new crush. She's a mutant and can speak to him telepathically. Dean struggles to respond in the same fashion. One word of warning. This clip uses a word that teenage boys often used to refer to a lady's chest. Just FYI. 
Just come be with me in Eden and challenge Martin for leadership. How did you do that? You talked to my brain! You can do it too. Just try and think your words into my brain. She's gonna kiss me. I used to want to kiss the girl gremlin with the lipstick. Talia's taller and has boobies. No, okay. Just concentrate, concentrate. Triana had boobs. I wonder if all boobs are soft, or are some super extra soft. Dean, what you're not doing is concentrating. You cannot let your mind wander. Do I just touch them, or should I ask? I really hope they haven't gotten all mutated. But what if they drip acid now? All right, never mind. Let's just talk regular. Explain what you mean when you say that the show is about, uh, what was it, failure and sadness? <laughs> uh... Yeah, uh, disappointment and unsuccess. Uh, it's disappointment and failure. Uh-huh. Yeah, um, yeah. Because I, I I realized early on it wasn't it wasn't a modern uh, um, uh, subversive take on Johnny Quest in in that like the boys are not Johnny Quest. Like the real story is that Doctor Venture was once Johnny Quest and has now grown up. You know, um, he was he was raised in the the space race jet age. You know. Uh, neo-futurism kind of uh, uh, era and has grown into just a miserable, <laughs> bald, pill-chewing, you know, um, which I think the whole country has kind of done. So, I mean, I'm really drawn to that period. I'm, I, I love the 60s and, you know, design and architecture and the culture and, and I love the space race and stuff and, and uh, how how much uh, futurism was going on then that we seem to have dropped the ball on now that, now that we've arrived in the two thousands. In, so, in, in a way it's kind of, it's kind of like connecting the disappointment is almost generational. Is that what you're saying? Yeah. I wouldn't go so far as to say it. Uh, oh, this, the, the generation that followed is crappier. It's, it's more like uh, all those dreams, those bubbles burst, those dreams uh, died for whatever reason, probably in large part to, due to uh, the actions of that previous generation. You know, um, uh, Watergate probably (laughs) burst that bubble a little bit. One of the things that struck me was the way that this show has a very odd reflection and and often kind of a comment on um, the world of action, boys' action adventure and comic books and their weird relationship with women. Mm-hmm. Like the way that the the boys live in this womenless world, this motherless <laughs> world, with this uh, father slash non father and this non father slash father, yeah, and they're all this kind giant of, murdering uh, uh, muscle bound mommy that they have <laughs> in the form of Brock. Exactly, and it's like, and it's uh, it seems like in in a way, kind of a way of addressing the adolescent issues that um, these adolescent characters should have, you know, but kind of have weird versions of in comic book world and adventure world. Yeah. No, that, that, that's definitely uh, so something we, I've always kept in mind is, is the lack of women in their world. And in, in our world, uh, in the Venture Brothers world, it, it definitely has a negative effect on everybody. <laughs> you know, it's not like, hey, boys club. It's, um, we don't know how to feel. <laughs> They're, you know... They don't know how to emotionally respond to each other, and you know all the, all the women are either uh, femme fatales or uh, literally whores. Uh, Brock will run into some hookers from time to time. Oh, you also have a character who's a woman uh, who speaks with a man's voice. <laughs> yeah, 
who's uh, who's who's becoming like the only genuine woman in the show <laughs> and becoming a more fully rounded uh, uh person instead of just oh we need a woman here i mean have you ever thought about that in terms of not only the kind of fictional worlds of uh, adventures and comic books, but also the real-life worlds of adolescents, and especially the kind of adolescents who are into adventures and comic books and other things that might be called nerdy? Absolutely. Yes. <laughs> which, uh, uh, which includes uh, me. Uh-huh. You know, um, and everything I both uh, love and hate about myself <laughs> as I grow older and seem to remain an adolescent <laughs> um probably made the show up when i was single uh-huh. if that tells you anything but uh, it's all, all all adolescent male fantasies it's it's the dark side of all of that it's the sad it's the sad truth of all that and uh just like it's the sad truth of the the, the broken dreams of the the space race you know it's oh we really did it to just be in competition with the russians and oh we're not really a boys club there's just no girls that'll talk to us <laughs> you know <laughs> no girls allowed because they don't want to be here um and also i mean just uh um in terms of the 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 blueprint that i was following johnny quest mother dead um just not an interesting fun fact my mother also did so it's fun for me to mess around in my own subconscious about all that too. Can you not it, to get too deep? I mean, it. not to get too deep, but is there? Was there like a, a, any examples that you can give of how your own experience informed what you're doing here? Uh, <laughs> probably gave me a, a darker sense of humor uh-huh. as I was growing up. Um. Yeah, because she also died right when I was at that prime boy adventure age. I was like 10. <laughs> and uh, I definitely retreated into comic books and, and uh, movies and stuff after that. I mean, I was a real comic geek in my teenage years. And I worked in a comic shop. And all I wanted to do for a living was draw Spider-Man. And so I went to a cartooning school after that. So now that I look back on it, uh, I'll definitely probably a response to that especially because i had you know um kind of revolving door situation with the step families and my father remarried a couple times so i just went in my room and read comic books and got chubby chris mccullough also known as jackson public is one of the creators of the venture brothers we spoke in 2007 The show's fifth season is airing now on Adult Swim, Sundays at midnight. The first four are available on DVD and from Netflix. After a break, Jason Kotke of Kotke.org tells you some of his favorite things of all time you can waste your time on on the Internet. And the hosts of My Brother, My Brother, and Me offer up answers to listeners' pop culture quandaries. Oh, and also Lemmy from Motorhead. It's Bullseye from MaximumFun.org and NPR. Bullseye is supported by MailChimp, building technology for people and businesses around the world to design and send email newsletters. More at MailChimp.com. MailChimp, email marketing for everyone. Hey, gang. You can subscribe to the Bullseye podcast at MaximumFun.org. 
It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. The three brothers McElroy host the MaximumFun.org advice podcast, My Brother, My Brother, and Me. And from time to time, they join us here on Bullseye to help solve some pop culture quandaries sent in by our audience. Justin, Travis, Griffin, how are you? Doing great. Good. How are you? We have some just absolutely tremendous uh, questions that need your expert or, frankly, inexpert guidance. (laughs) Um, Why don't we get straight to them? Uh, Here's a question from Katie. Uh, She's wondering uh, about movie and concert posters. Are they acceptable to put on the walls of an adult's apartment or house? Uh, sub question: What if they're framed? Um, I I would say, as a man who once had a Ace Ventura when Nature Calls poster <laughs> on his wall, not movie posters, not a goof, not a goof for radio. I still have a a, a tombstone poster hanging up in my wife's office because it helps her to think. That's not a joke either. That's, that's, but that's a great movie. What if you have a, a poster for a bad movie and you didn't know? That's the worry that you run into. Uh, comic book posters are war- straight out, by the way. If you have yeah. a p- picture of a, a super uh, team, I don't care who drew it. Get it off it. of there. You say that, and I'm staring at my Superman poster. Oh, but it's Alex Ross. It is. It's, it's, it's beautifully okay because done. because it's Alex Ross. It's artwork. I think that the poster <laughs> maybe has to be from a movie that came out before you were born. It has mm-hmm. to be an original poster, not a reproduction. And it should probably be in a foreign language. Yeah. That, all those are great I'm, criteria. I would also suggest that it not have been made in Photoshop. It had to be, <laughs> if it was drawn by a real ass man or woman, then it's a lot more acceptable, I think. And don't use poster sticky tack because it stains the walls. There's no, <laughs> there's no poster that can go up on your walls as an adult without a frame, right? Got to yeah, frame uh, it. Definitely not. Can you put posters on outside walls? <laughs> Just to like let people know that like you are coming into a, a Doug Flutie enthusiast. <laughs> <laughs> Abandon all non-Flutie ye who enter here. Well, what you have to do is when you put on a movie in your house, you have to put up a now showing marquee outside. <laughs> oh, that's great. With each passing idea, this is sounding less and less like the home of an actual person and more and more <laughs> like an episode of a show on HGTV. <laughs> Maybe something That's where called, the... The show's just called Help! <laughs> I did it wrong! Here's a question from a user on our forum who goes by Concrete Tales. Um, he is wondering whether he can tell his now four-year-old daughter that the shows that she likes, especially Dora the Explorer and Thomas the Tank Engine, are awful. They actually rebooted it. They they rebooted Thomas. Now it's he's just Thomas the Tank. And it's a <laughs> way cooler show. Yeah, it sounds awesome. I, you're, it's your fault, dummy. You think the four-year-old is, like, calling the cable company and subscribing to these channels and buying DVDs off of Amazon? Stop giving him bad things. At at this point, you've lost him. He's closer to Dora and Thomas the Tank Engine than he is to you. When your daughter's like, (laughs) hey, I want to watch Dora, I want you to say, ooh, instead, let's watch Downton Abbey. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Your four-year-old's going to love that. It's time to grow up. At this point, if you try to take Thomas the Tank Engine away from your baby, they'll put you in a home. Yeah, maybe at the at the rate adults are going, you're going to start getting put into adult care facilities at around fifty. 
and <laughs> your child will will put you there if you t- try to take Thomas away from her or him. I would say you're probably better off just pretending like they never existed. <laughs> oh, that's great. That's good. Break the DVDs and be like, what? Do- Dora the what? A talking train? What are you talking about? Won't they be traumatized by you trampling all over the line between fantasy and reality, sort of like me when I watched Return to Oz? (laughs) (laughs) You were the kid that had to hide behind the couch whenever TikTok came on the screen, weren't you? (laughs) Oh, man, I was so afraid of TikTok. Like a fat metal genie. I hate that guy. (laughs) I was afraid of everything in that entire movie. Why did I watch it? It's a horrifying movie. When I was a child, I was afraid of the HBO logo they would show before movies. <laughs> that I had to hide. Absolutely true. That's 100% true. I was terrified of it. And the robotic woman from Superman 3. Here's a question from one of our forum users. Uh, his name is Dandy Fellow. I presume that's not his legal name. That's the name he uses on the forum. Is it in good taste to approach a stranger because of a book they're reading or a band that they're wearing the shirt of or any other sort of public consumption of a thing that you like and support? I, the T-shirt? t-shirt? Yeah. Yes. That's what they're inviting with the T-shirt. They're hoping that they're showing their support. They're flying that flag. They're hoping that someone will come to them and strike up a conversation. The book, though, that's like that's their time, you know, like, hey, I'm enjoying this thing and relaxing with it. And now you've come over and stopped me from doing that. I if you ask someone about the book they're reading, what you are saying to them is I forgot to bring something. (laughs) I'm I messed. I did it wrong. So now entertain me. That's all. I didn't get a book so I could hopefully strike up a conversation with some people. Who's handing out books? <laughs> I was in St. Louis when they was handing out books in St. In Chicago. <laughs> I was trying out some of that red snapper that entered cart. Oh, boy. That's about it. You can get back home. Something that irks me for reasons beyond my comprehension is when people say, oh, yeah, I read that. Like, I, strangers. Strangers say this to me. Like, I was on a plane reading Game of Thrones. who said, oh, I just finished that. As if they're just bragging. We get it, man. You're literate. <laughs> Got Would it be better if he was that. like, I've never read that. I can't read. <laughs> that make you feel good? Nobody says that in the tone like, oh, let's start a book club. They always say it like, this book was a race and you lost. <laughs> Justin Griffin and Travis McElroy are the hosts of the advice podcast, My Brother, My Brother and Me, which you can find for free. In iTunes, Zoom, or whatever podcasting software you'd like to use, or online at MaximumFun.org. Gentlemen, thank you once again for joining us on Bullseye. Thank you. I hope we helped. Every week on Bullseye, we're joined by our favorite critics to recommend bits and pieces of culture that are worth your time. This week, we're joined by weblink maestro Jason Kotke from Kotke.org. Hey, Jason. Hey, Jesse. How you doing? I'm excited to talk about your all-time picks here for internet. Um, first of all, this is the most amazing thing that the internet has to offer as far as I'm concerned. Information on the topic of Sending children through the mail. (laughs) I couldn't even make it through saying it. (laughs) How do you even find out about sending children through the mail, Jason? 
Um, I saw a, a picture. It's a photo from 1900, and it's a mail carrier posing uh, with a young boy in his in his delivery bag, and it's from the Smithsonian. It was on uh, Flickr Commons, which is a program that Flickr has where uh, museums and other public institutions can upload their photo collections, which is fantastic. It's like there's stuff from Smithsonian and NASA, the National Archives, Brooklyn Museum, all sorts of different stuff. Okay, so was sending children through the mail ever an actual thing? Apparently so. There were So the uh, post office introduced their parcel post service, uh, in 1913, which is like basically you can send stuff that's bigger than a letter through the mail. Um, and this was a great thing for, for people in in the U.S. who were living in rural areas because they could get all sorts of stuff shipped to them for the first time, um, like live animals and stuff. Like live animals that didn't need feeding in transit were fine to ship. And so I think people thought, like, oh, you know, if I can send like, chickens through the mail like why can't i send kids through the mail there's so many reasons well and uh yeah so according to the smithsonian there were a couple of kids that were sent by mail before the uh the postmaster general put his foot down and and stopped it okay let's talk about um one of the great internet phenomena which is arguing over a weird theoretical physics question and your post about uh, Cecil Adams of the Straight Dope, the famous uh, question-answering alternative newspaper column, trying to answer the question, an airplane taxis in one direction on a moving conveyor belt going the opposite direction at the same speed. Can the plane take off? Now, what did you learn when you delved, I'm sure, far too deep into this uh, question about something that will never happen? <laughs> Uh, I learned that, uh, a lot of people think it will, will take off and that, uh, there are other people who will swear up and down, even people who have, you know, who, who have, you know, physics degrees, science, knowledge, background, you know, they, they insist that the plane will not be able to take off. Do you think this is a worthy Kickstarter project? (laughs) Well, it's funny because Mythbusters, uh, a few years ago, they aired a program on this this question. They had a truck pulling a, you know, a, a tarp, basically that was, I don't know, it was a couple thousand feet long. And then they had an ultralight take off. You know, basically they had the truck pull the tarp one way and the ultralight was going the other way. An ultralight, that's like that's like a uh, one of those super skinny airplanes? Yeah, it's like a, it's like a one-seater. It's an ultralight airplane. It's a very light airplane i guess you know they had they had the plane try to take off which of course it did wow physics is amazing and so is the internet it is jason kotke's uh post about whether a plane can take off if it's going exactly the same speed forward as a conveyor belt that it's standing on top of is going backwards is on his website at cocky.org, as well as his post about sending children through the mail. You can find links to both on our on the Bullseye page on our site, MaximumFun.org. Jason Kotke from cocky.org, thanks for joining us. All right. Thank you, Jesse. After the break, I'll talk to Motorhead's Lemmy about bridging the gap between punk and metal. If you don't know who Lemmy is, just imagine a rock and roll frontman who has his own tank and drives it around 
and that seems appropriate somehow. It's Bullseye from MaximumFun.org and NPR. Happy summer, everybody. Griffin McElroy here, the youngest of the McElroy brothers. I'm Travis McElroy, the middlest brother. And I'm beloved performer, Jimmy Buffett. He is not. But we do do a podcast together called My Brother and My Brother. I mean, it's a comedy advice show. You can find it at mbmbam.com, maximumfun.org, or just search for it on iTunes. I love you, Sacramento! You're not, you're not even on a stage. Griffin, are you watching the shrimp? They're beginning to boil. So join us this summer as we waste an hour of your life that you'll never get back ever again. You know, I know something about wasting away again in Margaritaville. I'm beloved. I know you are. It's summer now, and come September, you're going to wish you had stretched it out just a little bit longer. So, get planning. Hop on a boat with Mark Marin, Eugene Merman, Cameron Esposito, Dan Deacon, John Roderick, John Darneal of the Mountain Goats, and a ton of other great comedians and musicians. And we've got a new addition to the lineup, Wyatt Cenac. It's the Atlantic Ocean Comedy and Music Festival, September 13th through 16th. Set sail from Miami into the Bahamas for music, comedy, and of course, shuffleboard. Tickets available now at boatparty.biz, a real website for a real event. The Atlantic Ocean Comedy and Music Festival is sponsored by Splitsider.com, KCRW, and MailChimp. I'll see you from the high seas. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. Lemmy is an icon of metal. He was born Ian Fraser Kilmister in 1945, and he grew up surrounded by rock and roll. He learned to play guitar playing along with Beatles records as a teenager, got a gig hauling gear for Jimi Hendrix in the late 1960s, and in the early 70s joined the psychedelic space rock band Hawkwind. Lemmy got kicked out of Hawkwind, probably for being more into doing speed than dropping acid. But maybe that was for the best. He went on to form one of the most important bands in metal and punk music, Motorhead. Here's one of Motorhead's most beloved records, 1980's The Ace of Spades. Lemmy and I spoke in 2010 at Stubbs Barbecue in Austin, Texas, just hours before Motorhead was set to perform there. He was in town for South by Southwest, talking about a documentary made about his life called Lemmy. It's available now on DVD and Blu-ray. Lemmy was at the beginning of heavy metal. You know, maybe even pre-Black Sabbath. Without Lemmy, there'd be like Motorhead, there'd be no Metallica, no Megadeth, no Slayer, nothing. There wouldn't be any of the heavy metal we have today. There's no words to describe him, really. He's just the f***ing legend that is Lemmy. He's like God, you know? Man's the modern Jesus. Yeah. To be honest, he's Jesus Christ. Rock and roll, he's Lemmy. Lemmy, he's rock and roll. 
Fun fact, Lemmy doesn't do interviews before 1 p.m. because that's when he gets up. And when he gets up, he pours himself a stiff drink. I know because I saw it in his hand. Lemmy, it's great to have you on the show. Thank you Thank so much you. for being here. Thank you. I, I, I was really touched um, in watching the film uh, Lemmy about you last night um, to see you talk about first encountering rock and roll in the 50s. Right. Um, do you remember what the first rock and roll records you heard were? No, to be quite honest, I don't. There's probably a guy called Tommy Steele who was an English rocker, you know, like probably him, or Bill Haley, probably. Rock around the clock, you know, one of those. Rock and roll was this huge cultural turning point. What what was significant about it to you as a kid? Like, what what made it, it make was you mine? And nobody else liked it. <laughs> My mum and dad hated it, so it was obviously good, you know. Was it something that your that your peers were into, that your friends were into, or, or yeah, was it well, a few of them, you know. It's uh, it's weird, you know. Things go in cycles. I've seen the same thing happen about five times, now, you know. Rock and roll is dead. No, it's not. You know, like, and so we come around to another different kind of rock and roll. Now there's the original, then there was the Beatles, then there was the um, San Francisco sound, then there was like punk, you know. It always comes around again. We're waiting for another one right now. It should be a, a rejuvenation of it soon. It's not happened yet. People think it's already happened. It's not. There's going to be a new sensation first. You're English, but you spent a lot of your adolescence in Wales. Yeah. Um, was that difficult for you? Was it, was it weird to be the English kid? Well, it taught me how to fight. <laughs> <laughs> and it also taught me the futility of fighting, because it doesn't matter how hard you are, there's always somebody harder. And it's all luck anyway, you know, so I just give it up after I got out of Wales. There's no point, you know. But, you know, you know how kids are. When I first got there, I had to fight about the first 20 kids, you know, the top echelon, you know, see what I was made of, you know. What was your record? Oh, I lost a lot. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, you're surrounded by the enemy, you know. (laughs) It's not your best environment for best foot forward, you know what I mean? You, You were a teenager when you first saw the Beatles, right? Yeah. Well, well, tell me, tell me where and, and when. What playing? Yeah, 1960, I guess, or something like that. 59. I got my first guitar, I think, and then. Uh, I mean, we just played around the local, you know, births, marriages, and deaths, you know, sort of thing. You don't get much funeral work. I'll give you that. But we, uh, yeah, we we play anyway, you know, just to play, like you know, when you're a kid, you do that. Wouldn't do it now. Money up front, please. Hawkwind was the band that you were a member of in the uh, end of the 60s, beginning of the 70s. 71 I joined, 75 I got fired, yeah. And uh, Hawkwind were, as described in the movie, especially sort of an acid band. Oh, yeah. Um, And you don't seem seem like an acid kind of guy, but maybe I'm mistaken. Were you then? (laughs) Oh, yeah, man. I mean, we used to take them like dolly mixes. I mean... They said acid didn't work two days in a row, but we found out if you doubled the dose, it did. You know? <laughs> so that's what, I mean, the whole Hendrix tour was tripping. Everybody, the crew, you know, the, the, all the bands, everybody. I didn't know anybody who wasn't doing acid then. 
67. It was just, that's how it was, you know. It's the same over here, too, you know. How, how, did, how did it affect um, your sense of making art? Well, I haven't done any for a long time, but it's really, uh, I think it's a beneficial thing to have done it. On the other hand, there's a lot of people who did it and never came back, you know. There's somewhere in the basket weaving factory, you know, which is kind of unfortunate, but it did very well for me. It taught me a lot about myself, and it made me very self-aware. You know? what, what did it teach you? Oh, I don't know. You can't describe. It's just uh, it changed my perspective on more or less everything. Because you just uh, you're helpless in the face of an acid onslaught, you know. You just go boom. You know. So you just have to grasp the mane and ride it out, you know. It's good. It's, uh, it takes all your control away, which is very good for some people. I want to ask you a little bit Oops. about uh, about um, uh, the aesthetics of your playing. Um, you play the bass uh, in a way that no one else does, um, except maybe people who are trying to sound like Lemmy from Motorhead. Not many of them. How did you come to... Do, first of all, d- describe what the difference is for these well, public radio people out strings. there. A, it's like I play it like a sitar in a way. I have an open string, a drone string, and play the notes on the next one up, you know. So as long as it's an E or A or D, I can do that, you know. And uh, I do a lot of chords... You know, so that's mainly what's different because I'm a guitar player turned bass player. You know, when you started playing bass, what, what did you want out of out of the sound that you were making? What, what was your objective? I wanted ear splitting noise, actually, <laughs> preferably in tune. But you know, if it's ear splitting enough, that doesn't matter either. No, I just wanted to be in a band, you know, basically. I wanted to belong, you know. And Hawkwind was a great band, you know. I mean, I got up on stage. The guy said. Who plays bass? The bass player didn't show up, you know. It was a free show. And the, the guy says, who plays bass? And my mate who wanted me in the band to be his friend said, he does. I thought, bastard, you know, I never picked up a bass in my life, right? Never, even. And uh, I got up there, and Nick Turner, the sax player, was really helpful. He came across and he said, make some noises in E. This is called You Shouldn't Do That. And walked away again. None of that old-fashioned stuff like two verses solo, you know. Help you out. So, I mean, I must have done something, right? I was with them four and a half years, you know. In terms of music, um, um, you actually got you got fired from Hawkwind. Yeah, no, I got fired from every band I was in, actually. <laughs> the only way I could stop being fired was to form my own band. You know, they can't find me out of this one. It's mine, you know. When you formed your own band, did you did you have, like, a, a plan, a scheme? Was there something that you thought, well, this is my yeah, band and see, it's going to be different in this plans. way? We, uh, I, was, I wanted to be the MC5, basically, you know five piece of the singer and I was just going to be the bass player and of course then the singer leaves you know because he can't stand the guitarist or something you know and off it went you know so I, I got stuck with the singing and it just worked out that way now I, I couldn't imagine being just a sideman behind a singer anymore I, I could have then in Auckland I used to do the high harmonies just backing vocals you know it's Bullseye I'm Jesse Thorne I'm talking with an icon of rock and roll Lemmy He bridged the gap between metal and punk with his band Motorhead. We spoke in 2010 at Stubbs Barbecue in Austin, Texas. A documentary about his life, also called Lemmy, premiered around the same time. The basic difference is that most bass players sound like this. Whereas I sound quite different. One, two, three. 
You play in, in Motorhead in this incredibly ferocious style. Mm. Um, what inspired you to do that in, in a time when, you know, even, even bands that were loud, like The Who, were, were not ferocious the way that Motorhead is? Well, The Who were, actually. The Who were always ferocious because Townsend's nuts. <laughs> and like Entwistle's nuts, you know, and, and Mooney was definitely nuts, you know. They were always pretty vicious, you know, but like, there's, I know what you mean, yeah, there's a lot of live bands looking at their shoes, you know, while they're playing. I, that's not the way I do it, you know. You've got to be, you've got to let the audience know you're there, you know. Well, was that something that you chose for yourself? Like, did you think this is what I want to be? Yeah, yeah. I mean, you see a lot of bands, and I've seen a lot of bands. I saw the Beatles at the Cavern, you know, before they got a record deal. And I saw the Stones early on, too, and I saw The Who a lot. And I saw Hendrix, because I was working for him. And it just told me that you've got to stand out. You've got to be a, a different... You've got to look different, right? Because who wants a band that looks like them? Come and show up interchangeable with the audience. That's not show business. That's not very entertaining. You know, anybody can buy a bloody plaid shirt and a pair of jeans, you know. That's not the story, you know, you have to be special, I think. I always customize everything as soon as I get it, you know. I, I was reading this interview that, that was with you, and it was from the mid-1980s, 1986 or something yeah. like that. And you were talking about, you, you were, there was a, I think it was a metal magazine, you were talking to a, a metal dude, and he was talking about, you know, bands singing songs about, you know, you know riding lightning with the devil or... No, we never wrote about the devil. <laughs> yeah. So, no. but in, in your reaction to him talking about that was that you felt like it was, I think you said that it was felt like cheating or something like that. Oh, it's too easy, isn't it? The devil, you know, ooh, you know. And also people like Striper who sang about the Lord, you know. I think it's all bollocks, all that. I don't need the Lord or I don't need the devil either. I'm responsible for what I do, you know. You know, you can hold me up in front of the great desk in the sky at the end of it all. And I'll, I'll be quite happy to put my hand up for my actions, you know. You really opened up a lot for this documentary, um, sort yeah. of three years of your life. Um, Felt like five. <laughs> Everywhere you go, another camera comes around the corner, you know. What was it like? Did, did, you, have any, um, did you have any reservations about trusting the story of you to someone else? No, I got to see it before it went out, you know, so... Any glaring faux pas I got to kill, you know? But it was okay, you know? I mean, they, they did very well, I think. Do you, do you permit yourself time for that kind of self-reflection? Like, do you, do you think back about what you've done and who you are? Not much. It's, with this game, you've got to be on top of the time, you know? You've got to be on top of where you are right now, you know? There's no room for... Well, when you had this problem before, I recall, you know, that's not good to you. This is this time, not that time. Something that I wondered it, it, as I was watching the movie was you've had such a, such a singular life, like such a commitment to being this, this thing that you are. This thing, yes, that's right. You that's know? Right, right, yeah. And I wonder if you, ever, if you ever imagine yourself... If you ever imagine yourself having lived a different life, if, if you ever think of... Well, I could have been a convict... <laughs> I'm not qualified for anything, you see. Anyway, I, I have no uh, diplomas or nothing. I didn't graduate, you know. So I was expelled, you know. That was my graduation present. You know. So uh, this is one of the few things. There's this boxing and evangelism, right? 
I don't fancy the other two. Too much punishment. <laughs> you, uh, but I mean, if you, if as I was watching the film, you know, I, I looked at the, I looked at the other guys from um, uh, the Rockin' Vickers, right. your your first band, um, and. I don't know. Maybe they're still touring as the Rockin' Vickers, but they didn't appear to be. No, they're not now. No. And and I heard you talk about having to make a choice between being a rock and roll guy and having a family life. Well, if you have a family life, that usually kills the rock and roll half of it. You know? Yeah. Because you have to be at home, you know, with kids. But, but but I never was married, you see. So. But there, but there are there are people who there there are people who you know choose the family life over the rock life, and right. I, I, that's that's what I really wonder about whether whether you've ever whether you've ever thought to yourself maybe I should have done no. this differently and quit when I was thirty five. Most marriages break up, you know, especially these days. I mean, I don't know any happily married couples, do you? Oh, I, I'm pretty happy. Well, yeah, you know, but that's on the radio, yeah. You know. I mean, we're not going to hear any secrets from you, right? But do you know any other happily married Hey, Lemmy, you don't know about the groupies I have to deal with. Oh, I'm sure. Just the road headaches. Well, how do they know which one you are? You're on the radio. <laughs> My dulcet tones, friend. <laughs> it seems like such a difficult life that you've chosen, the, the relentlessness of it, the touring and the... It's a great life. I get to travel all around the world, sleep with women of all sizes, colours and religious persuasions, and everybody there is happier than when I arrived. I mean, what better job is there than that? What do you think your life would be like if you retired? What would you do with yourself? Retired? I don't understand that. (laughs) Why why would you retire? What could possibly be better than this? You know, I haven't got any grandchildren to dandle on my knee and etc. you know. So I don't see why you would do that. Well, Lemmy, it's so kind of you to take the time to to talk to us. Thank you so much for being here. See you again. Lemmy plays bass and fronts the band Motorhead. We interviewed Lemmy in conjunction with a documentary about his life. It's available on video. It's called Lemmy. Every week on Bullseye, we close the show with a recommendation from yours truly. It's the outshot. Some records are about virtuosity. Jimi Hendrix rips out an amazing guitar part that blows your mind. Sometimes they're about feelings. Joni Mitchell taking you on an emotional journey. Sometimes it's power. ACDC pushing you into the red. Sometimes the appeal of a record isn't about those clear things, though. Sometimes you just get swept up by a texture swept into a, a state of being. I bought Blowout Comb by the hip-hop group Diggable Planets when it came out in 1994. I was 13, and it was my favorite rap record, almost from the opening fanfare. 
On most hip-hop albums, the beats come from a dozen different producers. Each one is an attempt to do two things. One, showcase an MC, and two, try for a hit. Blowout Comb is the opposite of that. Diggable Planets had had a huge hit the year before with their album Reachin' uh, that won them a Grammy and the single Rebirth of Slick, Cool Like That. You probably remember it. They were the digestible, friendly face of rap, the coffee shop alternative to scary gangsterism, which was the last thing that they wanted to be. Diggable Planets weren't gangsters, but they didn't want to give you a hug and share a chai either. Blowout Comb was a refutation of that image. It's an attempt to create a feeling, a state of mind. It's rich and full, and it's very dark. It's also explicitly revolutionary. The group was rescuing itself from the outside world and hoping to take their people with them. They said it simply in their first single from the album, the manifesto, Dial 7, Axioms of Creamy Spies. This is the season of our self savior. Check it out. In the year of 89, I stood past my black mind. Found peace up on the east, I shine. One time blind, I refined and over time. I realized the dreamy spine got the climb. Find the spot in this land of Uncle Sam. Focus my thoughts and be that true black man that I am. I stand in the face of oppression. With my sisters and my brothers, no slipping, no half stepping. The proposition is my representation. I wear Timberland, study in Timbuktu. Won't rest until they the album draws in samples from all over the musical spectrum, but they're all in the service of a unified tone. It's urban and muggy and aesthetically almost perfectly coherent. None of the MCs were engaged in the skills-centric hip-hop culture of the time. No one's ripping the mic, dropping a crazy verse, dominating the competition. Instead, every one of the members of the group becomes an instrument in a dense ensemble of sound. Blowout Comb wasn't aggro and super lyrical enough for the uh, people who came to love the similarly dusty sound of the Wu-Tang Clan maybe a year later. It didn't have the non-threatening hits that brought the group the Grammy for their first record. In fact, it was more or less the end of Diggable Planet's career. Blowout Comb was a commercial failure, and they broke up within a year of the record coming out. When Diggable Planets tried to communicate their cloistered Gramscian aesthetic to the world, they ended up alienating the people that they were trying to change. But that doesn't make Blowout Comb any less spectacular. That's my upshot. Type slick, keep it moving when it's after dark. We live in Brooklyn.
That's it for this week's Bullseye. The show is produced by Speaking Into Microphones. Our producer is Julia Smith. Our senior producer is Nick White. Our intern is Henry Malofsky. Interstitial music provided by Dan Wally. Bullseye's theme music provided by the Go Team. Thanks to them and their label, Memphis Industries. You can find this show and all of our past Bullseye shows absolutely 100% for free, downloadable, streamable, whatever, at MaximumFun.org. You can also subscribe to our podcast free in iTunes or wherever. Be sure to go to BoatParty.biz if you'd like to join us for the Atlantic Ocean Comedy and Music Festival. It's happening in September. And Mark McGrath, I'm sorry I ruined your Mark McGrath and Friends cruise. If you want to come on our cruise, you can come for free. Just email me, jesse at MaximumFun.org. That's about it. Remember, all great radio hosts have a signature sign-off. Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR. MaximumFun.org. Comedy and culture. Artist owned. Listener supported.